Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 is what we're studying today. We're studying the first six verses of this chapter. So we're right in the middle of an extended portion in which Peter is concerned that Christians be submissive to authority. It's a critical part of our testimony. He is particularly concerned that we're submissive to our authorities even when that authority inflicts unjust suffering. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 13, Peter had said, be subject, and there he's referring to governing authorities, civil authorities. And it's interesting that he's actually writing to people who have been unjustly and cruelly treated at the hands of their government. They had actually been selected to be forced refugees out of their homes to repopulate colonies that the the Roman emperor was trying to strengthen. Thank you very much, I'm sure was their attitude. Then, in chapter 2, verse 18, Peter says again, be subject, but here he's talking about in the realm of employment. Many of these refugees had sought protection and work under wealthy landowners, and these landowners, they came to find out, were often selfish and cruel and would mistreat them. And Peter says, be subject. You notice today's passage begins in verse 1 with the same words, likewise, be subject. But now he's talking about the domestic sphere, and he's concerned with a Christian wife who may be suffering unjustly because of her husband's insubordination to God. He counsels in verse 1, shockingly, be subject. Hmm. Sure, you already have tons of questions and maybe even hard resistance against this passage, and I pray that all of us, as we read it and understand it, will be open to receiving it. Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you're her children, if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. Reading the passage may have actually added to your questions, and I hope to address most, if not all, of those that are in this congregation. The main point of this passage is that a Christian wife should willingly support her husband as much as her obedience to God allows, even when he isn't submitted to God. Her primary strategy for winning him should be quiet godliness, that is, nonverbal. It's the godliness of her her character, her life. A Christian wife should willingly support her husband 
as much as her obedience to God allows, even when he's not submitted to God. Her primary strategy for winning him is a quiet godliness. I'm going to structure my teaching this week like I did last week with clarifications first and then applications, so critical clarifications of what this passage does and does not mean, and then applications for what it should do in in terms of affecting our day-to-day lives. So I begin with this clarification. First, Peter's counsel is transcultural. If it applied in his very difficult culture, it certainly applies in our own. So Peter wrote in a culture, the ancient Roman culture, that was much more chauvinistic than our culture. Roman husbands often treated their wives like property. They disrespected them. Compared to men, women had few rights. And that's the culture into which Peter was writing. So when he urges submission, he's doing so in a much more difficult culture. And yet he explains that this is pleasing to God and that it follows the 2,000-year-old example of Sarah, who was in a totally different culture in the ancient Near East, not in the Western Roman culture. In other words, this sort of counsel is cross-cultural. It's it's trans-cultural. It's trans-historical. It applies to us today. Now, some people want to go even deeper. And they want to say, (laughs) Peter's counsel here really shouldn't be followed in any culture. These are people who undermine the Bible's authority. Sometimes they will say, maybe it just applied to Peter's culture, but it certainly doesn't apply to other cultures. They would say, this view of telling wives to be subject to husbands, even to husbands who are insubordinate to the word, This kind of counsel is oppressive for women. It was oppressive for women in Peter's culture. It's oppressive for women in our culture. And I would say, you should face that kind of thinking head on. Don't be scared of that. Don't ever be afraid of truth that you know. Right? Don't be scared of people who want to attack the Bible saying, oh, this is horribly oppressive. Such critics often overlook the facts. The facts. The fact that historical research has demonstrated that wherever Christianity has gone, a society's respect for women has consistently increased. Take a look at the the sociological research done over the lifetime of Robert Woodbury at University of Texas. They often overlook the fact that sociological research consistently demonstrates that today, church-going women indicate that they are the least depressed and most satisfied women in any category. Now, let me be clear. Many, many professing Christians do not live like Christians should live. And no Christian is perfect. I'm not suggesting that if you become a Christian, everything is going to be easy. Clearly, I'm not saying that. The passage isn't saying that. But we're talking about overarching, general, broad descriptions. Josh Howerton last month reported on research. He summarized research, much research that's been done. And he says, this is his conclusion, contrary to the popular culture's narrative, 
theologically conservative, gender traditional, church attending women are in the category of the happiest relationships and least abuse in the country. The Bible's words, including Peter's very words right here to women, are ennobling. They are not demeaning. They have proven, the Bible's words to women have proven to be good to women across history, across cultures, including even in our own day. Again, I'm not saying that everyone who claims to be a Christian lives like a Christian or that every Christian is going to be in a happy relationship. That's not what I'm saying. Just pointing to history, to sociological research. Peter's counsel is transcultural. Peter's counsel, secondly, is limited. In urging Christian wives to submit to their husbands, even to disobedient husbands, Peter is not urging wives to submit to abuse or to behavior that would involve their disobedience. I explained this last week in my teaching on submission to government. There are many exceptions to the default position of submission, and I'll suggest just a few. For example, if your husband is physically abusing you, call the police. Peter has just said in a previous paragraph that the civil authorities are designed by God to punish lawbreakers. That's the category that that would fit in. If your husband is demanding that you lie, Peter would tell you, don't agree with him. And I use that word agree very carefully because it's the term Peter used in Acts 5.9 when he talked to Sapphira, who agreed with her husband Ananias to lie about how generous they were being to the church. Third, if your husband is urging you to be sexually immoral, to watch porn with him or to have an open relationship, you must run and you must say, I have to obey God rather than man, rather than my husband. You don't submit to that kind of disobedience, to that kind of immorality. You might also say, if your husband is cheating on you, according to Jesus, you have an allowance This is not necessarily a recommendation, but an allowance to pursue divorce because of the way that your marriage relationship has been severed at the very level of vows. This applies to adultery. This applies to abandonment. It's not saying that you must get a divorce, but it's saying you have an allowance. Jesus made that allowance. So Peter is not suggesting that you submit to abuse or that you submit to sin to acting sinfully yourself. I would actually guess that the sorts of situations that Peter does have in mind would be something like this. I just give a few for your, for your consideration. Your husband demands that you never talk about your faith or read your Bible at home. Or your husband insists, do not ever confront me about my drinking problem. Or your husband doesn't let you give money to support the gospel advance. Or, your husband insists that you be home every evening. That doesn't really allow for you to go out in the evenings, maybe once a week, to study the Bible or to get together with a Christian friend. These sorts of demands are not right, but for you to submit to them would not involve sin. You can read your Bible outside of your home. You don't have to go to an evening Bible study, right? 
They're deeply frustrating. They aren't right, but they're not causing you to sin. And Peter says in these kinds of unjust, frustrating situations, submit. The last clarification I want to make is Peter's counsel to wives can apply to husbands. These words in verses 1 through 6 are directed toward Christian wives with disobedient husbands, but they can in part be adapted to Christian husbands with disobedient wives. They can, in some ways, be flipped inside out. He's writing to a group of Christians in which it was much more common for women to be in church without their husbands than vice versa. And let me be very, very clear. This is not because women are more godly than men. It's not because women are more naturally inclined to go to church than men. That is a false idea that has been believed in many cultures and at many times. The reason that Peter writes like he does is partly because in that culture, the man had authority. It was actually assumed that he would impose his religious views on the rest of the people in his house. So it would have been much more common for a wife to be in church without her husband than vice versa. Now when I say that Peter's counsel can apply to husbands... I don't mean in the sense of role reversal, right? God has designed marriage to reflect the relationship of Christ and his church. So he's designed husbands to reflect Jesus in faithful, loving, self-sacrificial leadership. And he's designed wives to reflect the church in terms of faithful, loving, self-sacrificial support in carrying out his mission, You can't reverse those roles. But Peter's advice could be adapted like this. Christian husband, sacrifice yourself for your wife even if she's not a Christian. Don't primarily use your words to evangelize her. Use your changed life. Let her see your faithful love. Let her see you focusing more on your character than on your looks. And let her see your quiet faith in God that leads you to be fearless no matter what situations you face. Much of the advice here, not role reversal, but much of the advice applies to you if you are a Christian husband who's dealing with a disobedient wife. Now, I want to shift from clarifications to applications. The first application, I would say, is Christian wife. Your quiet pure, gentle demeanor is most winsome to your disobedient husband. Your quiet, pure, gentle demeanor is most winsome to your your disobedient husband. Of course, Peter is counseling wives whose husbands may be disobedient to God, and he's saying, focus on your character. Focus more on how you live than on what you say. And he suggests there, the exact wording of verse 1 is, your disobedient husband might be one without speaking a word. Might be one by a non-verbal approach. Now, again, I need to clarify, Peter is not making a promise that you will most certainly win your husband. Instead, he's stating a possibility And I need to say this as well, because there are too many Christian wives who beat themselves up. They think, I must be to blame if my husband hasn't been won yet. My husband is disobedient. He's still unconverted. It's my fault. And I would say, not at all. 
Not at all. Your husband is personally responsible for his choices. You're responsible for your choices. And each of you can make things harder for for the other. But each of you is responsible for your own decisions. You can't win your husband. This is a possibility. This is what I would call the best strategy that Peter suggests. It's not a foolproof promise. Now, I want to further stress what is and is not meant by this term, quiet. Peter stresses the importance of character, and he says a quiet character. I need to clarify two things. He's not talking about a certain personality type. He's not saying if you're an extroverted woman, you've got to become an introvert. He's not talking about personality change. Nor is he saying that you need to zip it, never speak. I need to give this qualification. He's describing unhealthy marriage situations. In a healthy marriage situation, a Christian husband invites his wife's input. He relies on his wife's perspective. He rarely makes decisions without her. Even less would he make decisions against her. In healthy situations, a humble husband welcomes and invites his wife's criticisms. He treats her as his closest friend, knowing that a friend often gives faithful wounds. Healthy marriages are marked by back and forth, by discussion, by prayerful consideration together. And a godly man recognizes just how critical his wife's input is. So Peter's not recommending silence, absolute silence. Nor is he recommending an introverted personality type. Not at all. What he's recommending is a focus on the fruit of the Spirit. Loving respect, moral purity, gentleness. If you stated the opposite, he's saying don't be selfish, Don't be characterized by a demeaning spirit. Don't be characterized by harshness, by assertiveness. And he describes the fruit of of a woman's character, the fruit of the spirit in this woman's life. He describes it as a beauty that is more enduring than physical looks. He says, in God's sight, it's very, very precious. It's of greatest value. It's priceless. Now, Getting even more particular, I I want to apply this to wives, but then I want to take it a little different direction. If you are a Christian wife, you need to weigh these words, and you need to ask God, search me and try me, know my heart. And you may, after giving some attention to these verses, you may need, in the upcoming days or weeks, You may need to apologize to your husband for demeaning him. Maybe you've spoken foul words to him. Maybe you've been harsh. You've been demanding, contrary to the spirit of this passage. I would urge you to respond to the spirit speaking to you through these words of God. But I actually want this morning to address my applications more toward singles, toward teens or young adults who may, in the Lord's will, get married someday. I have a complimentary bit of counsel, and that is 
Christian single guys, look at verse 1. Teens, look at verse 1. The greatest quality that you could give your future wife is that you submit to the gospel. Are you a man of whom it can truly be said God's word matters to you? That you follow Jesus. His word matters to you. It matters more than anything. If Jesus says do this, you do it. If Jesus says don't do this, you don't do it. Are you a man of that kind of character? The word that sadly describes some husbands are they don't obey the word. The greatest gift you could give to your future wife would be that you are a man who obeys God's word. That God's word matters to you. That would not only delight your wife, it delights the heart of God. I speak to Christian single women. Say, look at verse 4. Peter actually says that there is an unfading beauty that's invaluable to God. I can't help but think that Peter may have in mind Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive Beauty doesn't last But a God-fearing woman will be greatly praised Single women If God's will for your life includes marriage Then the greatest gift you could give to your future husband Is a life that's more beautiful on the inside than on the outside a life that's dominated by the fruit of the Spirit. So I would say today, don't focus on beautiful clothes more than you focus on the beauty of Christ. Don't focus on your looks more than you focus on your love, whether you love God and love others. And notice how Peter's words ennoble women. They put a dagger in the objectification of women, which is what our society does all the time. You are how you look. No, you're not. You are who God knows you to be. The second major application that I would give as Christian wife, your fearless faith in Jesus is most stabilizing no matter what your disobedient husband might do. Your fearless faith in Jesus is most stabilizing no matter what your disobedient husband might do. Peter shifts his emphasis slightly from the fruit of your character to the root of your hope in God. You see that in verse 5, especially when he points out how women hoped in God and it resulted in this right relationship, this respectful attitude toward their husbands. He uses the example of Abraham's wife, Sarah, to teach that this respectful demeanor is rooted in faith, faith in God's promises. And Peter's use of the Old Testament here is awesome. It's awesome. It's funny. It's profound. It shows that Peter was a man who meditated a lot on the Bible, including the tiniest details. Okay, I've got to explain this just a little bit. In verse 6, 1 Peter 3, 6, Peter says that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
The only time that ever happens in the Bible is in Genesis 18.12. You might have it in one of your marginal references there. And this is the scene in which three men come to Abraham's tent. They come to his home. One of them is the Lord himself. Sarah is in the kitchen preparing the meal that Abraham has said, we've got to have something to uh, share with these three dignitaries. She's in the kitchen, and these men are outside the tent telling Abraham that even though he's 99 years old, he and Sarah, who's about 10 years younger than him, and she's past menopause, the text says, they're going to have a son. And we gather that Sarah is actually not working in the kitchen. She's actually standing right at the door. And she's listening to the conversation that these guys are having. Genesis 18.12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure of a newborn child? This is awesome. It's hilarious because Sarah is respectful and calls Abraham my Lord as she's doubting the power of God, as she's emphasizing just how old her Lord is, and even as she's talking to herself. She's laughing, saying this in her mind. And that's what makes it so profound. You could just imagine Peter meditating on these passages in Genesis on the faith of Abraham and Sarah and coming across this little detail saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's not trying to be respectful here. She just is. It's such a part of her character. Respect for her husband was characteristic of Sarah even when she wasn't at the top of her game. It just kind of spilled over. That's, That's how she treated him. Wow. And Peter concludes, back in 1 Peter 3, 6, saying, and you're Sarah's daughters. You're Sarah's daughters if your faith is evident in your life, if your faith overflows in the way that you you love others. Now, Peter's not saying that your works save you. He's simply saying that the only kind of faith that saves you is faith that works. Like James 2 says, faith that results in a changed life. If your faith hasn't affected your day-to-day life, then you should consider your faith to be dead. The only kind of faith that saves is a living faith, one that actually affects your life. And Peter says, this is the only way you can be fearless. It's the only way that you can be totally not frightened if you are facing a spouse who doesn't obey the gospel, who doesn't submit to God. The only way that you can face that kind of, oh no, what if this happens, is if the gospel has gripped your heart, if, if you trust God's promises. This is really what Abraham and Sarah were trusting, isn't it? They had been told for decades that God was going to reverse the curse on creation and he was going to bless all nations on earth through their offspring. 
Paul says ultimately that offspring's Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. And they had to put their faith in God's word of promise. They had to trust it. And it was really on the ground, on that foundation, that they didn't have to fear any eventualities in life. It's really the same for us. Has the gospel humbled you? Has the gospel cleansed your heart from all of its guilt? Has the gospel thrilled you that the crucified, risen and returning king is your shepherd? He will not let you go. He secures for you inseparable love from God the Father. And you will forever live in the kingdom of Jesus that will one day ultimately take over this earth. Does that foundation allow you to go back home today and say, you know what, I don't have to be scared no matter what my home situation turns out like in the next few hours. I, I can be confident because God's promises are just that strong. Let's pray together.